and uh, invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, we're just a relatively short reading this morning from verses 1 through to 8. And here we begin to read about Noah, who is briefly introduced uh, in the last chapter. And so Genesis chapter 6 verse 1, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man, or perhaps more accurately, contend with man forever. For he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God, of the Lord. Let's pray together briefly. Father, as we come to this passage, we pray your help in understanding it. And Lord, would you give us insights? And Lord, speak to our hearts about the issues that it raises. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the last couple of chapters, Genesis 4 and 5... Uh, we've been looking at that period after Adam and Eve had been uh, lit- almost literally thrown out of the Garden of Eden. And uh, we've seen two things in the last couple of chapters. Firstly, we've seen the spread of sin uh, through mankind. And we've seen it in two dimensions, if you like. We have seen it spread intensively as it has spread into the heart of man. And uh, we saw the story of Cain. Uh, the man who went through, as it were, the motions of religion, uh, offering, making his offerings to the Lord, but discovering that his sacrifices were not acceptable to God. And uh, in discovering that, he became bitter and angry and resentful, which ultimately resulted in his anger towards his brother whose sacrifice was accepted by God and him murdering his brother Abel you see how the the human heart from out of the human heart wells up the spring of malice that results in the most awful public sins of murder We've also seen it, that's intensively, but we've also seen it extensively as sin gets passed across the genera- across the, uh, from people to people and down the generations. 
Uh, and so we, we saw the, the how Lamech in the line of Cain, uh, there were a couple of things that were said about him. Uh, he took two wives. And so you begin to see the breakdown of marriage as God ordered it. He took two wives. Uh, denying what God had uh, uh, declared and made. And then we see a, a development of a hierarchy of domination of Lamech, marked by pride and vindictiveness. And so you see this societal change that begins to, to take root amongst, the, uh, amongst human beings. And we see that specifically in the line of Cain. So that's one thing we see, the spread of sin. But then the other thing that we've seen, in the midst of all of this spread of sinfulness, is a thread of God's saving grace, God's saving power, uh, in the family line of Seth, Adam's other son. And people begin to call upon the name of the Lord after the birth of Seth. And we saw this last week. People begin to call on the name of the Lord. The Lord, as it were, seems to uh, reassert his uh, 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 statement that man is made in the image of God. And so the image of God is being preserved, though it's marred by sin. Uh, the image is still there. And, uh, and we also saw through the appearance of Enoch that it's still possible to have a relationship with God, to, to walk with God, to live your life in the light of his smile and countenance, as it were. And the amazing thing for, about Enoch is, of course, that he, he didn't die so much as he was taken away by God. He was taken, he did not taste death, as Hebrews tells us, and uh, was taken to be with God forever. Which holds out the possibility that there is a glorious future to be had for people even in the midst of all of this sin. We can be thankful that in the midst of it all, God is faithfully at work. And that still is true for us today. That God is, continues to be faithful to all his promises. And he is continually uh, at work amongst his people. But as we come to chapter 6, certain truths begin to crystallize and take a certain order. And here in this short passage in 1 to 8... Uh, we have three truths that emerge. Firstly, uh, a reiteration of the pervasiveness of sin, a summary statement. So you can read that in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We'll say more about that in a moment. Then secondly, there is the judgment of God in verse 7 on this sin. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But finally, there is a way of salvation by grace. And that's found in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So we'll look at these three things. Uh, first of all, let's think again about the pervasiveness of sin. And verse 5 is the summary statement. But there's a background to this, of course, that's in verses 1 to 3. And uh, we see in what verses 1 to 3 how various problems arise in the area of marriage. There's a lot that's puzzling 
in these verses, verses 1 to 3. Um, and no doubt you'll have questions about them. Uh, some of you will, at least. Some of you won't be bothered too much, but uh, some of you will have questions. And so I will briefly try to address them, but please let not these questions distract you from the main point. Remember that uh, we mentioned last week about the, the idea of a bird flying into a classroom. Um, everybody wants to talk about the bird that's flapping around, but it shouldn't detract from the, uh, the education that's going on, so the main points. So we'll, we'll address the birds, uh, and we'll deal with the birds, but then we'll get to the main points. Let's focus on, on that. So in verse 1 we find here, there is a, a multiplication of mankind across the face of the earth. But note also, note also that attention is drawn to the daughters of, uh, of men and women. Uh, what about those daughters? Well, we'll see that in a moment. But in verse 2, there is also the mention of... Uh, so the daughters of men is mentioned in, in verse 2, but the sons of God is men, are mentioned in verse 2. And it's not entirely clear... What is meant by the sons of God at this point? Um, let me just run through some of the options. <laughs> A couple of the options. Some have thought that these are angelic beings. And that's certainly an ancient idea. Uh, and there are places in the Old Testament where angels are described as the sons of God. You can find that, for example, in Job chapter 1, uh, verse 6, and Job 2, verse 1, where Satan is uh, amongst the sons of God that are gathered to be, come before the Lord. It sounds like it's the angels that are being described as the sons of God. So is, are they angels? And that's certainly an ancient view. Uh, roundabouts... Uh, the intertestamental period, uh, that was the view. It was angels. Uh, but here's the problem. Uh, these sons of God, they marry daughters of man, and they have children by them. But Jesus tells us in Matthew 22, verse 30, that angels do not marry and are not given in marriage. And it seems a strange thing that one kind of being should marry and produce offspring with another kind of being. So this seems to me to be impossible. Others have thought that the so this is a second option. Others have thought that the sons of God are the descendants of the line of Seth, and that the daughters of men are of the line of Cain. And so what's being portrayed here is intermarriage between those who are, at least on the face of it, godly, and those who are not. And that's a view that many of the Reformers took in the, uh, around the, the Reformation. Though, of course, to, to believe that, you have to, that's not without its difficulties, you have to make the equation that says the daughters of man are the daughters of Cain. And one could ask, well, why doesn't he just say the daughters of Cain, if that's true? Uh, there's a, in a sense, there's no reason to do that. However, it does seem a more likely option. And so, uh, there are other options, but there, there seem to be sort of variations of those two options. But I think we'll work with the assumption that uh, he's, he's talking primarily about the line of Seth and the line of Cain here. And that's 
the sons of God therefore need to be understood as those who have been marked by a relationship to God and they are walking with God in obedience to Him. However, there comes a point where even these people have fallen away from godliness. Because they take for themselves women from amongst those who have no relationship to God. And you'll notice that the impetus for this seems to be only attractiveness. Attractiveness. Now, of course, when two people want to get married, of course, attractiveness is an important component of that relationship. Uh, Human beings are not blind to each other and not blind to the attractiveness of your partner, the beauty of your partner, the handsomeness or whatever. Uh, We shouldn't uh, discount that. But we need to remember that when marriage was first instituted uh, through Adam and Eve, Adam, of course, was drawn to Eve when he saw that uh, she was uh, of a like kind to him. And he was uh, full of praise to God. But it was done in the context of relationship to God. But it, and then, then it was to be a partnership between the man and the woman, where the woman would help the man in the, in the, the mission that God has given the man. And so together they would form this partnership and do all that God has commanded them. But it seems to be here in chapter 6 that that whole notion of relationship to God and partnership is missing and all that's left is merely attractiveness. Now friends, this is where a danger can come in to human relationships. Don't you find that so much of the tittle-tattle of human relationships these days is founded upon the notion of physical attractiveness. And it's as though we are willing to say in our modern society, as long as we have beauty, then everything else can be worked out. And that dominates our media age and our social media age. People get to be influencers because they they can take a great Instagram picture, or a number of them. People want to follow that, and people want want to be influenced by all of that. That the physical appearance of people is what seems to really matter. But there's little interest in the whole idea of relationship to God and character that seeks to serve God and to do the things that God has commanded. As one person has put it, we have divorced beauty from goodness, the goodness that comes from God. And that opens the door to all kinds of problems. And notice also in verse 2, this is an interesting statement. At the end of verse 2, they took as their wives any they chose. There is a hint here that if, if one of these sons of God saw a woman that he was attracted to, he would just take her. Nobody suggesting that there was anything, any, any forcefulness in it. But he could take as many wives as he wanted and people just get, went along with it. 
Now, it's out of these, these relationships between the daughters of man, the sons of God and the daughters of man that the Nephilim um, appear. They are uh, seem to be the offspring of this union. Well, these unions. Now, what is Nephilim? Well, it's a, it's a transliteration of a Hebrew phrase. And sometimes, like for example, the King James Version translates it as giants. However, it, it literally means the, the fallen ones. The fallen ones. In other words, the suggestion here is that the children of these unholy marriages are no longer in relationship to God. And this highlights for us, I think, how it is that sin cascades down the generations. Even if the line starts with a, with a godly ancestor. I mean, just imagine for a moment your own situation. Imagine three generations of your family. You think of yourself, think of your parents, think of your grandparents. And your grandparents... May f- and I'm speaking hypothetically, I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, but your, your grandparents may be go- a godly couple. Or you may have godly grandparents who are faithful believers, have relationship to God, have a partnership that is wonderful and testifies to the goodness of God. But then the next generation comes and they begin to drift your father and mother, they begin to drift. And you don't think it, it matters that you marry a godly spouse, that all that matters is attractiveness. And so your parents maybe suggest or go along with the idea that all you need is an attractive partner. And so you, the third generation, you grow up in a marriage where your parents have lost their way and therefore you have no interest in following relationship to God. You see how sin can cascade down the generations. Any generation of Christians is only one or two generations away from apostasy and walking away from God. And this is what's happening here in Genesis chapter 6. And the result of all this is summarized in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What's brought into view here is how all the external problems of man in marriage, in family, in society, and so on, they all have their origin in the hearts and intentions of human beings. Notice those three words. Every intention. Only evil. Continually. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, continually. In other words, there is not a single thought or feeling or intention that is not continually affected by the presence of sin. Now that doesn't mean that everybody is as evil as they can possibly be. But it does mean that there is no depth to which all human beings cannot sink. 
that when the time comes or the opportunity presents itself, it is quite possible for any one of us to sink to the greatest of sins. And anybody who thinks to themselves, I could never do that, you really just don't understand the extent of how sin has affected you. You see, this is, this is what is called total depravity. Nothing is untouched by sin. The mind, the affections, the will, everything is tainted by sin. Which means that we can't think our way to God. We can't try and make ourselves love our way to God. We cannot even want God rightly. Because all of our, all aspects of our being is tainted by sin. It's the dry rot that hides itself, but one day leads to ultimate collapse. So that's the state of man. All his intentions, all the thoughts of his heart are continually uh, against God. So what's God's response to this? Well, let me take you to the next point, which is God's judgment. God's judgment. And, you know, this is a constant theme throughout the Bible. God comes in judgment. And verse 7 puts it this way. I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made him. Uh, Now, how does this come about? Let me just point out three things that's under this heading of God's judgment. Firstly, notice the relationship that's implied. If you look back to verse 3, and uh, you'll note that when I read this, I changed the translation slightly. It says, God says, my spirit shall not contend in man forever. If If you've got an ESV in front of you, you'll see there's a footnote um, that says... Uh, my spirit shall not contend with rather than abide in. Uh, the King James Version says, I, 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 my spirit will not strive with. And so you get this picture, you see, of God continually has an, has an ongoing relationship with all men and women, which is a relationship of striving. God is striving and wrestling and arm wrestling with men and women all the time. See, God is not an absentee landlord. He's not disappeared. He's not paying attention to other things. He is continually contending with people. And he's doing this through the work of his Spirit as he operates uh, through the conscience, through the creation, which declares the glory of God. God is continually contending with people by his Spirit. And God is patient, and he will not immediately judge the sin, which is he is within his right to do. But instead, he strives with men and women, wrestling with them, the Spirit using their consciences and speaking truth into their lives. But God will not do that forever. God says, for he is flesh, verse 3. In other words, this is not a wrestle between equals. This is God the Creator, God the Lord, wrestling with his creatures. God has no obligation to strive with his creatures. And certainly not indefinitely. 
So he gives a time limit. He says 120 years. And I think the most sensible reading of this, he's, he's not talking here about the the, the lifespan, you'll notice that after the flood, lifespans drop dramatically. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think he's saying in 120 years the judgment's going to come. He's talking about the flood that's going to come. So I'm not. Go- I'm going to give you 120 years, and Noah's going to preach, and he's going to preach through building the ark, and he's going to preach through his words, and he's going to tell people the judgment's coming. The flood is coming. But just think about this. How gracious is God? How gracious is God? Is God? He strives and He strives with people. He wrestles with people. He waits and He waits and He waits. But there will come a time when the striving will cease. For the waiting comes to end and the judgment will come. Friends, that's true today as much as it was in Noah's time. There is a greater judgment, of course. A greater judgment when Jesus Christ returns. And this time that we are in now is, is a time when God is striving with men and women, working on their consciences, drawing attention to eternity, seen in creation, even bringing the gospel to them that they might hear and believe. God is patient with people. And they may think that there is no God they, and that He will not do anything. But no, that's a misinterpretation. He is being patient with men and women. So there's this relationship that's implied here that God has. But the second thing under God's judgment is God sees the effects of sin in the world. You notice there in verse 5 the emphasis on the Lord saw the wickedness. The Lord saw the wickedness. Men and women are constantly under God's scrutiny. God is always looking. God is always seeing. There is nothing about your life or my life that he does not see. He sees wickedness in the world and in our hearts. He sees all of it. None of it gets past him. I mean, just think, when when you're a child, isn't it amazing... Wasn't it amazing just how much your mother seemed to know of you when you'd done something wrong? It's, it's like your mother knew you better than yourself. And though you tried to cover up your wrongdoing, your mother seemed to know the wrongdoing. She could read the body language, the actions, the behavior. She could read your facial expressions and your way of speaking. Because she knows you. It's a frustrating thing for children to realize that your parents seem to know you better than yourself, let me tell you. But if that's true of parents and their children, how much more true is it of God, who can see into our hearts and knows every intention of our hearts? God sees far more widely and deeply than we can give him credit for. He knows us inside out. He knows our thoughts, our body language, our evasions of the truth. He can see our sin. But then thirdly, under this heading of judgment, God is sorry and grieved to the heart when he sees it. Now, of course, I know you good Presbyterians are sitting there thinking, God is sovereign, how can he be sorry about anything? And you're saying, and some of you theologically astute people will be saying, God is impassable, how can he be affected by the sins of man? 
And I could answer you by telling you that Moses is using anthropopathisms to explain. You know what I'm talking about? Well, there's a clever way to explain it. And all of that is true and right and good. But we need to recognise and not miss this gut-wrenching point that these words are supposed to affect us as we read them, as we understand God's relationship to sin. We are supposed to be affected by the fact that our sin has an effect, as it were, on God. God was sorry because of the sin. He was grieved to his heart. And that's an anthropomorphism. He was grieved to his heart, because God doesn't have a heart like we do. Everything we say about God is not quite the same for God as it is for us. But we need to understand the gravity of the situation when the Bible says that God is sorry about sin and he is grieved to his heart. And friends, this is the... These terms help us to understand that judgment is the last resort of a God of holy love. Judgment is the last resort of a God of holy love. And this is the time that we are in now, where God will strive with people, but only for a time. He sees every sin. He is grieved by it as he holds off in patience. But in the end, judgment must come from this holy God of love. Well, there's one more vitally important thing to say as we come to a close. And it comes through Noah. For here we see the way of salvation. The way of salvation. You see, God is not simply concerned about judgment, but at the same time, He is concerned about salvation. Salvation is not an answer or a reaction to judgment. Salvation goes with judgment. And it goes at the same time. And we see this in Noah, as where it says in verse 8, Noah found favour in the eyes of God. Notice, first of all, the way that God saves. He saves by grace. And that's the meaning of the words favour here. And it's the first time that that Hebrew word chen appears in the Bible. Though I believe the thing itself, although the word hasn't appeared, the thing itself has been present even in the Garden of Eden. But grace is here, and grace is that thread that runs through all the way through Scripture. That ultimately the way of salvation is found by God's grace. That in the midst of all of our sin, it is God's grace that saves us. It is a reminder that for sinners steeped in sin, the only option for our eternal salvation is to rest upon the grace of God. There is no other option. And notice that Noah doesn't earn God's grace. Noah found God's grace. He didn't pass a test. He didn't have a quality that impressed God. It was almost like he stumbled upon it. He found favour with God. It's like he found the treasure of God's grace. 
And so grace is so important in God's saving work in the midst of his judgment. But there's another aspect to this, and it is that grace is always accompanied by faith. Grace is always accompanied by faith. And when Noah is mentioned in the great list of saints in Hebrews 11 verse 7, he is mentioned because he acted in faith, by faith, Noah. In other words, faith in the grace of the God of all goodness. Now some people might say, and they have said this in the past, that faith therefore is some kind of work and therefore a qualification for grace. So uh, God sees the faith and therefore he acts in grace. That's to fail to understand what faith actually is and what it does. Faith actually doesn't do anything. It can only receive God's grace. It doesn't actually do anything. Let me just give you an illustration of what I mean. If we, perhaps we can try and understand the nature of faith. Imagine one of those great uh, wind turbines that you see dotted around the hills across the country. And you look at those blades, the huge turbine blades, with their fascinating shapes. I, as a former aerodynamicist, am fascinated by the shapes of these blades. But do those blades turn themselves? No, of course not. They need the wind to make them move. So when the wind blows, the blades turn and then electricity is created. And in one sense, the blades are passive. They simply receive the wind, as it were, and generate electricity. And that's how faith works in relationship to God's grace. Faith is passive. It doesn't do anything by itself. It can't achieve anything. It can do nothing until the wind of the grace of God comes. And faith then receives God and lives are changed. And that was Noah. He found favour with God and believed God. And as we shall see in subsequent studies, it changed everything for him. Friends, this morning, are you still in your sin? Are you living a life in rebellion and defiance of God, whether publicly or secretly? Is that what marks your life out? There are only two options, really, for you. One is that you can carry on as you are. And you can make the best of it. But God sees and knows but, and will not strive forever. He may well give you more time, but in the end, judgment will come. But the other option is to realize that in God's holiness and justice, there is also revealed the way of salvation, which is by grace. And He calls you to believe in Him and to trust Him by faith. And to trust in his promises, which ultimately lead to Christ. And if you do that, you will find that there is a way of salvation out of your wretched condition. Let's pray together. Father, we pray you'd help us, even as Christians, to see our sin clearly, so that we may come more eagerly to God's for forgiveness and grace and mercy and to walk with you more closely 
to know more fully the way of salvation. And Father, if there's any here today who have not yet found that way of salvation, not found favour yet, Lord, open their eyes to see it, that they may receive it and believe in the promises of God and be saved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.